Tonight, we are starting the first of two weeks of talking about patterns as they relate to the topic of holiness. When it, when it comes to determining truth, there are, there are a couple of different things that are very important to us when establishing truth, when establishing doctrine, when establishing the things that we teach. And uh, I'm not saying that these three are in an order of significance, they're just the way that I wrote them down. One way is we do that by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. There are other places throughout Scripture that uh, communicate that, that principle to us. And so in this context of what I'm saying this evening, that, that means we don't take one single verse out of the Bible and make a doctrine out of that verse. You can, just simply with what to do to be saved, there, there are verses that say we're saved by hope. There's verses that say we're saved by faith. So if you take any one single verse by itself, you, you could very well be establishing false doctrine. But when you put multiple verses together from... from uh, whether that's different chapters, different books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, something that is true can stand up to multiple verses. So that's the first way. The second way and the second thing that is important in believing and establishing truth and establishing doctrine is context. Again, similar to the first point, you could pick one verse out and say some things that it's not really saying. That's why I think we've got some of the doctrines that we have in the church world today is because if you take some, there's some verses that if you take them all by themselves, they are really great verses. (laughs) If you shall ask anything in my name, you will get, you will have it. Isn't that awesome? I mean, how many of us would not love for that to be, that anything you ask in His name, He will do it. As really was taught in the last session, there are people that get disillusioned. Why? Because I asked it in His name and He didn't do it. There's context to that verse. There's principles that surround that verse that it's not just simply a magic wand to get anything that you you want. Another another principle or another example to me when it comes to context is it's why it's important to understand, uh, especially in the New Testament, the, the books of the Bible and kind of what they represent, who they're to. Many people have taken things that Paul says in the epistles as the plan of salvation. But the problem is, if you take something out of the epistles and use that alone as the plan of salvation, Paul was writing those things to people who were already saved. 
One of the most notable ones is in Romans. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. He wasn't telling people at Rome how to be saved. Just read the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 1, and it very clearly tells us that Paul was speaking to the saints. So that was not about how to get saved. That's a part of being saved. Same thing can happen with the Gospels. Well, we just Jesus said that for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes on Him should not perish, have everlasting life. That was Old Testament. No, it wasn't. It was in jo- Yes, it was. In the most technical sense, it was Old Testament. I know it's in our Bibles in the New Testament, but there is the 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 uh, testament is not in effect until after the death of the testator. It was at the end of the Gospels that Jesus died. Hanging on the cross. The thief, one thief was told, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, he didn't get baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Ghost. No, he didn't, because Acts 1 hadn't happened yet. And then the third thing, which is going to be our focus tonight and next week. Tonight's going to be perhaps a little bit more groundwork, and next week a little bit more of the practical application of it. But... Patterns, two other words that you'll, you'll hear in a scriptural context is shadows and types. Shadows and types, that means these things, they're, 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 they're not really about this moment per se, they're about what's coming, or, or this is an example of what's coming. The lambs that were slain in the Old Testament were a type or a shadow of what was to come. The Lamb of God being slain. And there's a lot of, I'll just say it plainly, there's a lot of false doctrine being taught and preached in our world today that people are buying into that all you got to do is, Okay, let's see, is there two or three witnesses? What's the context? What's the patterns? Because the bottom line is something that is truth will hold up to all three of these. All three of them, not two out of three. All three. The plan of salvation is one that's so important and and so critical that that for for somebody to say today, all you got to do is accept the Lord as your personal Savior, it doesn't take but a few moments of a few patterns throughout Scripture to prove that is inaccurate. But we go based on what popular opinion is, what's being preached today, what's being taught. And so we get off track because we are not making sure that what we believe to be truth lines up to multiple witness in Scripture. The context is accurate and the patterns hold true. Most of you here tonight, if not all of you, have been here for a significant period of time and know me well enough to have heard me state that one of my favorite things is is the the is is using. I don't do it as much now, I think, as I did, especially when I was youth pastor. But I enjoy having an object lesson when I preach. God is the originator of the object lesson. Paul says this in Romans one, verse number eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The New Century Version says it this way, There are things about Him that people cannot see, His eternal power and all the things that make Him God. But since the beginning of the world, those things have been easy to understand by what God has made, so people have no excuse for the bad things they do. Paul is saying... In, in, in essence, Paul's saying, all you got to do is look around. Look around at the heavens, look around in nature, look at God's creation. And, and if you do that, then you are without excuse, because God, from the foundation of the world, demonstrated those spiritual principles by what could be seen. And then you can take that to us, and, and we use not only creation, but you and I have the privilege and the, the benefit of using the, the children of Israel and using what took place in the New Testament so that we are without excuse. You know what's amazing to me is, especially on this topic that we're on tonight when it comes to the topic of holiness, people never want to argue against holiness from a biblical standpoint. They never use scripture to contradict holiness. It's, it's all about what the church world is doing today. It's all about, you know, it's all about tradition. It's all about this. It's a, show me in scripture, as I said the very first week when we started this class. If you can tell me when God changed... I will accept that there's some things that I've been teaching these last couple of weeks and will teach in the next couple of weeks that are not important and not necessary. I just need you to tell me when God changed. Because the things I read throughout this book show me a God that has some opinions. He's got some ideas about things, very specific ideas about things. And, and so if there's some point you can tell me at which he changed and he doesn't care as much as he used to, okay. The only problem is, Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So there's nothing about him that has changed, which is something that we ought to always rejoice over because in the midst of a changing world thank God that he remains the same listen to what Paul says in first Corinthians and I'm going to read a little bit extra to give you the context first Corinthians 10 verse number one I, I I'm again this is just sort of foundational because I, I I've referenced this a lot of times when I've 
reference the fact that God gave us things. But I'm not sure that everyone, and perhaps everyone here this evening, there are a couple of places where, where it's, it's, not a mat, it's not a matter of we just have come to this conclusion that we use certain things as examples and patterns. God clearly told us that. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, everything you and I have experienced in a spiritual context, the children of Israel experienced as well. Which is why when we talk about the plan of salvation to somebody that has a decent amount of biblical knowledge, you take them back to the Old Testament and you talk about the children of Israel and the tenth plague and the blood that was shed and put on the doorpost and coming through the Red Sea, which represents baptism and entering the wilderness where there was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. We've got, we've got repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. Sorry, I know this is be ye holy, but I just, I can't help myself. So please explain to me in the, the idea of accepting the Lord as your personal Savior. Help me understand how that applies to what the children of Israel went through. You can't. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. These things were our examples. To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmured ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things, what does all leave out? All these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Amplified Bible says verse 11 this way. Now these things befell them by way of a figure as an example and warning to us. They were written to admonish and fit us for right action by good instruction. We in whose days the ages have reached their climax, their consummation and concluding period. 
And then also the Living Bible, verse number 11, all these things happen to them as examples, as object lessons to us, to warn us against doing the same things they were written down so that we could read about them and learn from them in these last days as the world nears its end. So the idea of Creation and the children of Israel and all of those things being an object lesson and an example. It wasn't some kind of human being that one day came up with the idea, hey, maybe that's what this is about. God clearly through the Apostle Paul stated, these things were on purpose. What I did was on purpose. The way I did it was on purpose. And I realize in the context of these verses we just read, Paul's referencing pretty specifically the children of Israel in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. But I believe with all of my heart, the principle of what Paul is saying was not just about that scenario. It's a principle to be applied throughout Scripture. And so, I've heard it most of my life, as long as I've been old enough to have any degree of understanding. That, you know, well, that the doctrine of holiness and teaching and preaching about holiness, that's just a UPC thing. You know, what's, so what's so, it's, it's sad on one hand. But on the other hand, Brother Middleton, you know what's now kind of neat about that? The only person that can say that is somebody that's kind of ignorant. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean they have a lack of knowledge. (laughs) Because there's a bunch of people that are in the same organization that you and I are a part of that do not believe to the same degree we do. So this argument that it's tradition is no longer valid. It's never been true, (laughs) but it's not valid. What some of you are blessed to have no understanding or idea of is used to, we were kind of middle of the road. Believe it or not, we've kind of been bumped a little bit to the right. We're, we're, we're a little bit more conservative. Not because we've changed. Actually, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble to hear some of you say it. We have changed some. Well, when, when you know, years ago when Bishop, you know, it was. It's not Tradition. Again, isn't that, it's amazing. That's a big, that's just tradition. People leave the UPC and they let go of all their, the the influences of things that relate to holiness because they've been delivered, they've been set free. So let's, let's look a bit tonight. And again, for the most part this evening, I'm telling you in advance, we're, I'm just, I'm going to take this evening more so to just clearly try to clearly establish this idea as well as give a couple of examples. But 
We're, we're going to get really to the, to the down-to-earth stuff with this topic next week in part two of Patterns. This is this is to me. I don't. I'm not prepared to say it is the first, but but in in some of the context of what I'm saying tonight, one of the first examples to me of God's attitude, God's specificity about certain things is demonstrated. Genesis six, verse number fourteen. This is. The story of Noah and God giving him instruction. He says, make an ark. You see, this idea where where so many people approach it today, that's where God should, there should be a period right there. (laughs) Make thee an ark, period. So, Noah, make an ark. Figure out how you want to make it. You decide the size. You decide the length. You decide how many floors it has. You decide how many doors, how many windows. You decide all of that. That's, that's, that's the idea that we're being given today. But there wasn't a period there. Make an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. And now, and now watch this next part. That's a, that's a big boat, folks. That's a big boat. Anybody ever seen? Some of you have been on cruises. We Everybody in this room has at least seen the picture of a cruise ship. What do you see all down the sides from bottom to top? Windows. If you got, you know, the nice rooms, you got a deck. But, you know, you, you can get interior rooms really cheap on a cruise. But if you could at least get that. What's it called? I just I, portal. You can at least get that. You know, I mean, it's not much bigger than your head, but at least you can. <laughs> I want you to make this massive vessel, but I want one window. What, one window, God? <laughs> It'd be kind of nice to be able to get some views out of this thing. I want one window. And in a cubit thou shalt finish it above. And the door, the door. Everybody say the. The door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories thou shalt make it. One window and one door. We are going to bring all these stinking animals onto this boat and you've got one way in and one way out. You do understand in 2021, Brother Benner, the ark would have never been built. You want to talk about code violations. You got to have multiple 
exits. And God said, one window and one door. Why did God say one door and not leave it up to Noah to put as many doors? I mean, it, it would have made sense to me to at least have had two doors. One from one side and one from the other. But God said, one door. Why? Because of patterns. Because of context. I am not a way, a truth, and a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am very sorry to say, I wish they were true, but I'm sorry to say they're not, it's not true. All roads don't lead to the same place. All roads don't lead to heaven. We aren't all going to the same place, so you just believe whatever and however, and we'll see you there. There was one door on the ark because there's one way of salvation. I am absolutely convinced if Noah would have altered one of God's instructions, he would, have lo- he would have lost his life as well. If he'd have added one more window, if he'd have decided to make it four floors instead of three, I am convinced he would have not have been saved. Here we are today. Well, you know, we God doesn't really. God, God's not really all that concerned about the details. He's not. Re- uh, we'll, we'll we'll see that next week when we get into some more of this. You see, because salvation, there, you and I aren't going to heaven as individuals. We're going to heaven as the church. Church is what's going to heaven. The question is, who's going to be in the church? The church is what's being saved. Not That's why you can't get there by yourself. This idea that people have come up with nowadays, they don't need the church. They're good on their own. No, you're not. You're not going to make it on your own. Because it's the body of Christ. And if you are detached from the body, you are dead. Or artificial. And neither one of those are getting you to heaven. And I I just... I know the scripture doesn't say it. I don't want to take liberties. I just... It's what I do. It's how I think when I read these kinds of stories. You, you, You mean to tell me there was not the thought that crossed Noah's mind? About some part of this? I mean, I don't know, gopher wood? God, why gopher wood? How about, you know, look at all this we got. I wouldn't be surprised if they had to go out of their way to get gopher wood and there was some other kind of wood that was readily available. I have no, hear me, I have no ability to prove that. I'm not saying, I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they, they probably had a forest of... What's those other trees, the Bible tree? What's some other trees? Le- trees of Lebanon or something? What? Cedars. They probably had a forest of cedars right there. 
God said, nope, you're not using that wood, go for that wood. (laughs) Womp, womp, womp. Why? Why? Because he was trying to dim, he was trying to reveal himself. What, what did Paul say? That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is God was revealing Himself. In each one of these scenarios, He was revealing Himself. You don't... You don't <laughs> I've said this, and, and I, I probably should modify it a little bit because I'm, I'm really not trying to be unkind and and you know make anybody mad at me. But I've 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 said it for a while now. People that are dating, you are not in love. You don't love each other. You like each other. You are greatly attracted to each other. But until you say I do, and you start getting down to the nitty gritty. You don't, you don't really know what love is. <laughs> I, I, for the most part, I'm sure this wasn't 100% the case, but from what I remember, for the most part, up until we got married, every time I saw my wife, her hair was fixed, she was dressed nice, she, her breath smelled good, she was just lovely, and I was all, you know, I was dressed, I had my cologne on, deodorant, free, teeth freshly brushed, hair done, all that. It's not like that every single day. You don't really get to know somebody until you're with them most of the time or till you start going through some adversity together. That's when you really start to know. And more of that person is revealed. And after 28 and a half years of marriage, I know way more about her now than I did before I said I do. And she knows way more about me now than before we said I do. And, and please hear me, this is, uh, this, is not, th- this is not intended at all to be a negative thing with regards to God, because as the old southern gospel song says, he gets sweeter. As the days go by, he gets sweeter as the moments fly. His love is richer, deeper, something else, sweeter. Sweeter, sweeter, sweeter. As The bottom line is he hasn't changed. It's just my understanding and my revelation of him has increased and grown. So, so beginning at creation, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, he's showing us more and more about himself. And you don't, you know, you learn some things by, from people by what they say. Absolutely. But some of the, some of the, I think some of the most important things we learn from each other is not by what we say. It's by observing what we do. And so it's not just reading what the Scripture says. It's also seeing what God did and how God did it. 
And again, there may be some other events prior to this that would fit this point here this evening, but to me this is, if not the first, one of the first most notable events where God's beginning to show us, listen, I, I, I've, got some, I've got some strict ideas about what I want. Ezekiel 36, I read these verses a couple of weeks ago, but I want to reread this in the context of this evening. I will sanctify, Ezekiel 36, 23, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I, sa- when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. <laughs> I want you to, I know we're not using the screen on Thursday nights, and it doesn't, at least from what I body language, I don't think most of you are reading along on a device or a Bible, and that's a little more challenging, so just just try to grasp this. But, but listen again to what he says, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen. Now, it's this next part, it's not the heathen that he's concerned about profaning his great name. We blow all the world, the world, the world. Whoa, wait a minute. He says to his, he's speaking to his people here. You have profaned in the midst of them. He's saying to his own people, you have profaned my name among the heathen. Not the heathen profaning my name. You have. And this is the way that the heathen is going to know that I am the Lord when I sanctify you before that, when I am sanctified in you before their eyes. I don't mean that there's some things, at least to me, I feel like I just keep repeating lately, but oh well, I guess. I, I am convinced part of the reason the world has become disillusioned with Christianity is because Christians have profaned His name among them. Not by swearing and using His name in vain, by the fact they're looking at people that profess something, but there is no manifestation of the fruit of that in their lives. And so God's saying, I'm going to sanctify myself, but the way I'm going to do it, it's not by converting the heathen. I'm going to sanctify my name by you showing them who I am. Verse 24. This, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, I'll say this again this evening. This is, this, this, this is a, uh, uh, this, this, this verse by itself is in essence what holiness is all about. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. You know who becomes bitterness about holiness? You know who begins to resent the idea of holiness? It's those that have come out, but they've yet to go in. It's those that all they can see right now is what they've given up. They've yet to embrace what is in the promised land. 
How? I, I don't, I've never understood this. How do you go from 400 plus years of slavery, the last few moments of all of that being some of the most intense of all of that time, and in just a matter of days, you are begging to go back to that? They're in the wilderness. They're now free from their bondage. They're no longer slaves. God is providing miraculously for them. And all they can say is, would to God we had died in Egypt. Because at least in Egypt we had leeks and garlics and we had a variety of things to eat. You, you want to go back to that? You want to go back to that when what, li- what is lying in front of you is a land that is flowing with milk and honey? He did not bring us out to just simply bring us out. We are not separating from and that's it. That's the first part. Coming out, separation from, but it's separation to Promised land, my understanding of the promised land is it's not, I think sometimes we think promised land is symbolic of heaven. I don't think so. There are no enemies in heaven. There's nothing to drive out in heaven. It's not about heaven. But it's about a place that's prepared for you and I individually and prepared for us as a body collectively that there is a land that God wants to take us into. Yeah, there's going to still be some opposition and there's still going to be some fighting. But he told the children of Israel part of the reason that was going to happen. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but in essence, he told them, I'm going to leave your enemies there to take care of everything for you until you get there. He told them, I'm going to drive them out little by little. Another pattern and principle you and I might want to take heed to. God doesn't usually prepare your way with the red carpet rolled out miles and miles in advance. He's probably going to drive your enemy back little by little. I brought them out to take them in. I wind down with this. Nehemiah 7, the book of Nehemiah, most of you know, it's the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah had gotten word, was deeply disturbed by the condition of the the walls that surrounded Jerusalem, and he gets permission of the king to go back to rebuild those walls. And Nehemiah 7 and 1 says this, it came to pass that When the wall was built and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot. 
And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. It was a common thing in these days that a city would be surrounded by a wall. Not to make prisoners of the inhabitants, but to protect them from the enemies. Is it any wonder the enemy has worked so hard to get the church to take down all of its walls? Of course he wants you to take down the walls because then he has direct access. There were walls that had been built, again, to protect. Enemy is so good at twisting and, 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 and perverting things that God intended for good. You, you apostolics, look at all you're missing out on. Look at all you... you Oh, you mean I'm living inside of a wall that's got me protected. Now notice, notice it wasn't just a solid wall. There were gates. Because they weren't supposed to be isolated to themselves. But the point was there was supposed to be control over what was able to come in and go out. We can let Someone in, that's a friend. But we can shut the gates and keep out our enemies. Holiness unto the Lord. Holiness is that wall that separates us. Keeps us protected and preserved. In fact, listen to what Isaiah 60 and verse 18 says. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. Now listen to this, last part of the verse. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. You you will call your walls salvation. The enemy has worked since the beginning of the church, but I believe it has been intensified in the last several years, perhaps the last several decades. He has intensified his efforts to destroy the walls of salvation. Make no difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane. It's all the same. There are no distinctions. And the moment you start making a distinction, you are judgmental, you are intolerant. It's no wonder the enemy is using all of those tricks and lies and deceptions because he knows as long as you are protected, I can't touch you. 
As long as you are within the walls of salvation, I can't get to you. i got to somehow get you to either tear down the walls or come outside of the walls. And precious people, not bad people, not evil people, precious people, time and time again have fallen prey to these lies and deceptions of the enemy. Again, the children of Israel, they're they're not in your Bible and my Bible for historical purposes. I guess to a degree they are, but that's not the first and foremost purpose. Children of Israel are there because it's, it is an ensample. I, I've said it, I think, in this class in the last couple of weeks. I think I've said it in services on a Sunday in the last couple of weeks. They were constantly struggling as the children of God, the children of Israel. They were constantly struggling with being influenced by the nations around them. It was a continual thing. And they went through times where God finally says, Okay, if that's the way you, you want to be like them, I'm going to turn you over to bondage to them. And then they get what they want, and now they start crying, Deliver us. You see, folks, what you and I are facing today is not new. The wise man said there's nothing New under the sun. I've told this before and I'll tell this and, and close. I, I uh, as I've mentioned in various settings, I enjoy reading authors uh, from decades ago. A lot of the stuff written today, in my opinion, just kind of fluff. As you read some of those old preachers, especially some of them from England and Ireland and Scotland, and they tell it like it is. And I was reading a book by, I believe it was by E.M. Bounds, and it was on spiritual warfare. The book was written, I think, late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, but around that time. And in that book, he addressed the prosperity doctrine. He talked about the fact that it wasn't gymnasiums and all these other things that the church needed to reach the lost. Brother Ian, i got to tell you, when I, I thought the idea of the prosperity doctrine was just because of TV. And we are so, we've got it so rough because we've got to deal with that today. And before TV... Before fancy cars like we have and technology the way he had. Way back then he was saying there's a challenge in the church. Because there's nothing new under the sun. You and I aren't facing anything new. He may package it differently than he's packaged it before. He may try to make it look different than it's looked before. But it's nothing new. Father, thank you so much for everything you have said and done in this place tonight.
God, I believe once again this evening, you've been talking to some hearts and lives, and there's some things that were started here this evening in this first session that they weren't completed yet because you're not done, but you started something. And I pray that you would continue that, that you would bring it to completion in our lives. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray again tonight, God, that you would give us revelation and understanding. We are living in such challenging, critical times, and we are so close to the end, and the enemy is coming against us with every tactic, every argument, every lie that he can come up with. I pray, God, for every person that's here this evening that you would give us the discernment that we need to be able to see through the lies and the deception of the enemy. God, with all of the voices in our world today that are trying to influence us and direct us, I pray, God, that you would give us the ability to hear your voice, to be led by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, Amen. 